Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm so pleased to welcome today Shelly Stoneman. She's a Senior Vice President of Government Relations for BAE Systems, and she's the co-chair of the Executive Committee for the Leadership Council of Women in National Security. Shelly has had a really interesting career previously in the Executive Branch and in Congress. We're going to have a conversation with her about her career in Washington, D.C., and women in national security. Shelley, welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thanks so much for being here today. Dan, thanks so much for having me. I am delighted to be with you today. Shelley, tell me about your career. How did you get started in DC and how'd you get into national security? Well, thank you. You know, it, it feels like a long time in national security, but like many in the DC ecosystem, I was a political science national security nerd in college and then came to DC originally through the Washington Semester Program which led to two internships, uh, first working for a D.C. Superior Court judge, Anna Regan Carey, and then the second was working in the Clinton White House Office of Legislative Affairs. This is in kind of the 1997 period, so a really interesting uh, pivot point. And so after those experiences, I was truly hooked and couldn't wait to return to Washington after graduating from Vassar College. Uh, My first job was truly a dream job for me, working on the Senate Subcommittee for International Security and Proliferation for uh, ranking member uh, Senator Dana Kaka from Hawaii. While I was a staff assistant, I really had an incredible boss, Rick Kessler, a longtime member of the foreign policy community, and he gave me a lot of runway to do substantive work, write statements, speeches, hearing prep work and to attend think tank events around Washington. So getting to know the national security space from many different perspectives. And I left that job, frankly, dragged out kicking and screaming only because I married an army officer and moved to Germany for three years where I got my first master's in international relations and did some, uh, published some work on arms trafficking in the Balkans with my graduate professor. So it was an interesting and fulfilling detour, but I was really glad when we moved back to the D.C. area in 2003 so that I could return to the Hill. So you were deputy chief of staff for former Congressman Steve Rothman, and you were later special assistant to several secretaries of defense under President Obama. How'd you get these roles and what'd you take away from your time on the Hill? And what'd you take away from your time at the Pentagon? Yes, two very different experiences. Uh, I I came back to Steve when I returned to the States. I, I ended up getting a job working for Congressman Rothman. Fantastic opportunity. He was a thoughtful member who cared about foreign policy and happened to serve on the House Appropriations Committee. So it was, you know, the real powerhouse in those days, still today, in terms of Congress's power of the purse. He served on the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee and later got onto the Defense Appropriations Committee while I was there. So we got to play a direct role in conducting oversight of and directing spending for the Department of Defense. So after working for the congressman for five years, I went from during that period from his legislative assistant to legislative director to deputy chief of staff, I was asked to join the Obama-Biden transition team as the liaison to the House representatives for national security. And I was later offered the same role in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs for the Obama-Biden White House. So before I went to the Pentagon, I kind of had this interim role in the White House. 
And it was a real gift to work there uh, during the first two and a half years of that administration, you know, the first term of, of a new administration working on legislative issues. Challenging, but a real gift. Um, and so getting to spearhead, the memorable moment for me was getting to spearhead the vote on repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell on the House side and working on a wide variety of national security issues, everything from our presence in Afghanistan to homeland security against terrorism to detainees to acquisition reform. So after two and a half years there is actually when I moved over to the Pentagon, and I was really intrigued by the prospect of working for uh, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, who was then incoming. So I got to work at the tail end of Secretary Gates, uh, another historic figure. So I was with six weeks with Secretary Gates, and then the entirety of uh, Secretary Panetta's you know, year and a half there. And then I was with Secretary Hagel for about uh, seven months before I left for the private sector. And uh, the interesting thing about that job was that, you know, as the White House liaison, I managed the 282 presidential appointments at the Pentagon. So I was the liaison between the White House and then every corner of, the, of DOD where appointees are located or where they reside. Uh, it was a fantastic role because it truly led to a deep passion for the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion. Who's in the room? Who's making these decisions? And seeing the criticality of having a diverse workforce leading to better outcomes. So, but in answer to your question, kind of what was my takeaway from working for both branches? A key one, I'd say, is that the right people in the right roles goes a long way towards solving problems. And, you know, regarding national security, the best path of getting aligned is over, you know, on communications, it's really clarity, intent, transparency, and then recognizing, you know, when building a consensus just is not possible. So I think just being able to kind of see it from both branches perspective and even two different elements of the executive branch, it just makes you appreciate how challenging it is to get things done in Washington, but also that it is possible, especially working on things like national security. Great. You serve as chair of both the Leadership Council of Women in National Security and the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. How'd you get involved with these organizations? And can you talk about the work of the committees that you sit on? Sure, I joined uh, the Leadership Council on Women and National Security, we call it LC Wins, at the end of 2019, after one of the five founding women, the impressive Julianne Smith, who is currently serving as our ambassador to NATO, pitched the group and its mission to me. And as I mentioned, I was already passionate about the objective, achieving gender parity at the highest levels of the national security decision-making table in Washington, D.C. In our case, specifically at the two-star level or deputy assistant secretary level and above. So as a woman who came up in this community, I know that representation really matters. We all looked up to Secretary Madeleine Albright, you know, may she rest in peace, and she was a true powerhouse in terms of how important it is of pulling other women in as you climb. And you know, helping other women as you gain power yourself is just so important, but there weren't enough of her, or frankly, for, of Secretary Condoleezza Rice. And so this group of women realized that you know, rather than complain about this, let's pull together and figure out a path to breaking those barriers and ensuring that really highly qualified women, that there's an abundance of them out there. How do we pull those women together and ensure that future administrations are aware of their presence, their capability, and get in front of them? We are a nonpartisan organization, nonprofit, and so we are focused on advancing, you know, quality women from any political background, class, lived experience, and certainly bringing in women in all their diversity to the most senior national security roles. 
We are advocates for strengthening national security through gender parity, but we also provide specific training to the top qualified women to help navigate the very opaque, complicated presidential appointment process. So as I got involved with LC Wins, we were starting to ramp up to build a database that would ultimately provide hundreds of well-qualified women to each of the transition teams. We were not going to presuppose the outcome of the 20 election. And so these women were all ready to serve in the top national security roles. We reached out to both transition teams to share this resource. And once the election had concluded, proceeded to provide more than 900 women candidates to the incoming Biden administration, many who have in fact been selected for senior roles. So we are actually ramping up to do that all over again, regardless of the outcome of future elections. Uh, So for both parties, we are ready to go ensure that the many talented women are out there are considered and ready to serve for these roles. So that's Elsie Wins. And in terms of Dakowitz, uh, or the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, uh, I was certainly honored to be selected by the Secretary of Defense in March to chair this auspicious group, uh, which has been doing incredible work for 71 years. This committee is composed of civilian women and men appointed by the Secretary to provide advice and recommendations on matters and policies related to recruitment, retention, employment, integration, well-being, and treatment of service women in the armed services. So since 1951, really important data point, the committee has submitted over 1,000 recommendations to the Secretary of Defense. And as of 2020, 90% of those have either been fully or partially adopted by the department. So a really pivotal committee in terms of all of those elements that are important for women continuing to serve at the highest levels. So uh, since our official work has not yet begun, uh, we have our first official public meeting on June 23rd. I can't really comment further, but suffice it to say, I'm extremely honored to be involved and it's very much in line with my own passions. It's really great. There are many number of different reasons to have a diverse workforce, but make the case for why we need a diverse workforce in the national security space in particular. Sure, my own lived experience on this one certainly speaks to me that you know having women who are half of our population who have unique, effective, thoughtful responses to problem solving, crisis management and decision making. Research shows that diverse teams are stronger and more effective. They are more creative and innovative and more likely to avoid dangerous groupthink. I've seen this, I've lived it in person. And women, you know, especially women of color, are woefully underrepresented in senior positions in the national security and foreign policy. Certainly traditionally, although we are starting to see some real progress in terms of the current statistics of women serving. We've seen glass ceilings broken all over the place through many of the last few administrations. I mentioned the two former secretaries of state, obviously, which are a little bit further back there. But, you know, we have the first women, you know, serving at, atop the CIA. We have a lot of women who are leading within this administration across cabinet agencies but still some more you know, glass ceilings to still break, I'd say, in terms of the next round of appointments. But we want to make sure that this is not just simply a trend or a novel you know, thing to identify um, with this particular administration. We want this to really be the new normal. It's so interesting. Can you speak about women in the U.S. national security space that are working on the Ukraine crisis? Sure. I mean, certainly I think, you know, just want to comment on the women on the ground impacted by Ukraine. I mean, the, this is just, you know, a level of resilience that few of us have had to endure 
in recent years. And so just kind of putting it on the level of, of humanity in terms of the people that you know this crisis is impacting, women are probably disp- disproportionately impacted as they are trying to survive, keep their families safe, and many of them have become displaced as they've had to flee, leaving behind you know, the men and their family required to serve in this all-hands-on-deck defense of Ukraine. The most amazing thing has been to witness, you know, back to this last question, you know, why is it so important to have a diverse panoply of perspectives, voices, and certainly, you know, in this case, you know, gender parity in the room, we have seen some incredible women leaders step forward internationally that have been right in the thick of the decision making. Our U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, Ambassador to NATO Julie Smith, who I already mentioned, are all working this every single day to advance the objective, to share intelligence, to provide you know, platforms, weaponry, munitions to our allies in Ukraine, because they realize that this is something that is going to decide the international world order going forward. So I just think that being able to see these women in action um, while, you know, empowered in these top roles has just demonstrated how wonderful it is when you have a, a diverse team putting forward solutions that our national security is absolutely contingent on. Can you talk about the women in Ukraine and the role that they are playing in the conflict? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I do think that some of these women, you know, the, the resilience of the women on the ground is at play here. Some of them are serving. You know, many of them have had to kind of flee with their families. Some of them are pinned down in you know, Mariupol. There are so many folks, women in particular, who have just been caught in this crisis as they're trying to kind of manage just mere survival, but also, you know, not back down in the face of, you know, this geopolitical dominance um, that Russia is trying to demonstrate here. Their values, their spirit, their fighting force has just been an inspiration to us all. And so just seeing from the ground perspective that no one is ready to give up, it has rallied world leaders around the world as well, just to fight for them. This is so interesting, Shelley. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and have this conversation with me. Are there some parting thoughts you want to share with our listeners today? Dan, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I would say that please, you know, we would love to have support for our continued work on bringing women into the uppermost ranks of the national security community. So you can certainly find us at lcwins.org and follow our work, we welcome um, you know, women reaching out with interest to continue this important mission. This is great. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for coming on today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 